0: Good morning church. How are you doing today? It's so good to see you again and, and worship God with you and, and now we get to open up the Word of God and study a little bit more about Jesus and the life he lived and how we can join him in that. If you're new with us here today, we're so glad that you're here. My name is and I'm one of the pastors on staff here and we're just glad that you decided to worship with us this morning and have braved the rain. We've been marching through the gospel of Luke these past few weeks, and we are in Luke chapter 4 today, if you have your Bibles. And these, these books, the, the, are these books the, four, the first four books of the New Testament, we refer to as gospels, and they focus on the life of, and teachings of Jesus Christ. So we'll be in Luke chapter 4, and we're just going to have to dive right in, because I'm going to confess to you today, I'm preaching three sermons today for you. Yeah. Uh, don't worry like don't get out of here and like run off don't I don't want to scare you off like there's three individual sermons but they're all going to be short and sweet to the best of my ability you know Um, but you need to know that the content that Jesus is preaching from in Luke chapter 4 after what he said was so controversial so shocking that the townspeople got out their torches and pitchforks and ran him to the edge of a cliff and tried to kill him so (laughs) I hope that doesn't end up happening to me today. And some of you are giving me the look like, Brayden, I don't care what you preach, but if you go over on time, <laughs> I, w- I will run you off a cliff. So I'm going to try to keep it short and sweet, but we're doing three sermons today. So again, Luke chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 14 this morning. Let's, let's go ahead and pray real quick. Father, thank you so much um, for everybody here this morning, and thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for sending Jesus. Uh, and, and Lord, as we look at his life this morning, I pray that we would be aware of the fact that Jesus came to be an example to us, not to be an exception to the rule, but the example that we are to follow. Spirit, I pray that you would open our hearts and ears and our minds to hear what you have to say this morning. And Lord, give me the words to say and the strength to say it, and help me say it in the proper tone. Lord, we love you and we thank you. It's your name I pray. Amen. We are in Luke chapter 4, verse 14, sermon number one. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everybody praised him. Galilee was Jesus' home country. It was the hilly countryside in the northern part of Palestine, near the Sea of Galilee. It was about a three-day journey from the capital city of Jerusalem. It was completely devoid of city folk. Its hills were dotted with towns and villages that had been ravaged by years of war, and political unrest, and instability, and riots, and poverty. And every few years, like every decade, or few decades or so, these towns would be burnt to the ground and rebuilt for the past several hundred years before Jesus came. Extremely poor farmers, fishermen, and migrant workers made up the population. And several reports from from ancient Jewish and Roman historians, as well as modern day scholars, they estimate that that the region had as high as a 90% illiteracy rate. 90% of the population couldn't read or write. These were poor, uneducated, working class Jews. The other gospels say that Jesus was the son of a carpenter in one of these towns. It is it is implied that he took on that trade as a teenager and during his, his 20s. The word for carpenter here is tekton. tecton. simply means woodworker or peasant worker or day laborer. Tecton was considered to be lower class, a, a little bit higher than, than homeless people and beggars and the diseased, the infirm. It's a little bit higher than slavery and indentured servanthood, tecton. And it simply means... Uh, day laborer or worker. He's an indentured day laborer. They didn't build houses out of wood back then, you need to know. Like, I, I don't want you to have this glamorous view of Jesus as a carpenter making all these sculptures out of wood. I don't want you to think about Jesus doing that. He's building tables and chairs. No, he didn't, he didn't build sculptures out of olive wood to sell at the Christian bookstore. He didn't do that. He wasn't, He wasn't carving frames out of wood to sell Thomas Kincaid paintings. That's not what Jesus was doing. He was a migrant day laborer, a tecton, very lower class. They didn't have houses out of wood back then. They just had mud bricks. And so he would have to travel likely to the different towns and fix fences and doors. That's kind of what Jesus was doing. I want you to think of Jesus not as a glamorous carpenter, but more like the, the, the immigrants that you see in the parking lot of Home Depot looking for work. Back a few months ago before we moved to Franklin. We lived in Madison, Tennessee, which is on the northeast side of Nashville. It's a poor and forgotten corner of the city. And before I took this job and, and before I, I moved to Franklin and the family to Franklin, wh- what I had to do, I had to drive over an hour to work every day. It was a really long commute. And as I was driving, I would see this truck on the side of the road every, every day. And in this truck, there's this guy that would sit. And he was there early in the morning, and he'd be there late at night. And on the side of this truck, there's this sign that said, Handyman, we'll work for food. We'll do anything for food. I would see him early in the morning as I was trying to beat traffic, and I'd see him late at night after I got off work. That's the image I want you to get in your mind when you think about Jesus being a carpenter or the son of a carpenter, a tecton. Think of Jesus as a, as a migrant day laborer. When he was about 30 years old, though, Jesus got up one morning and instead of being a handyman or a day laborer or a tecton, instead he is led by the Spirit to be baptized in the Jordan River by John. He returns to Galilee sometime later, a prophet, a teacher of God, a rabbi, and he begins preaching and teaching in the small towns about the kingdom of God and he's healing people and he's making quite a name for himself. He's becoming quite famous. They're amazed by his words. They're astonished. He's he's achieving rock star status. And it's not hard to do in these tiny towns. I mean, these towns, maybe 50 to 100 people lived in these towns. And so Jesus is coming, and he's proclaiming with authority the kingdom of God, and he's healing people. He's creating quite a stir all across his countryside. This is is the buzz that he's getting. And, And word about him spread throughout the region. And finally, he decides to return home. Reading on, verse 16. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Okay, stop. (laughs) Nazareth is Jesus' hometown. It's a town of about 100 people, a day's walk from the Sea of Galilee, and a three-day journey to the capital city of Jerusalem. Nobody famous came from Nazareth. It wasn't a city of note. It wasn't even a tourist trap. There was no reason whatsoever to visit this town. Hill people, middle-of-nowhere people, scary people, (laughs) critter people, stick people, you know, they said Jesus was a man of deliverance. He kind of was because he's from Nazareth, like the, the movie Deliverance. You know, the, the, the rafting trip mishap movie. You know the kind of town I'm talking about? Those tiny critter towns? The kind of town where, where the shopping mall, the best restaurant in town, the bank and the post office are all the same gas station? You know that kind of town where everybody's related and has 11 toes? And if you shot it or hit it with your van and killed it and grilled it, it's dinner? You know that kind of town? Where, where some people's moms have Duck Dynasty beards and it's not even winter yet? That's where Jesus is from. Nazareth, Critter Town, Stickville, Leafers Fork without the Puckets. Okay, that's where he's from. <laughs> Jesus was born and raised in a trailer park on the outskirts of Nazareth. And if you have a similar background here this morning, I'm not trying to bash you or, or make fun of where you came from. I'm not trying to trash where you grew up. I'm here to simply point out that this is where God's dwelling place was for 30 years. I mean, we're getting ready to get into Christmas season. You know, this word Emmanuel is going to be thrown around a lot. And the word simply means God with us. And God, when he decides to join humanity, decides to do so in Nazareth, the Savior of the world, God in the flesh. In in John chapter 1, it says the word or the the word of God is God, and he, he came to dwell among us. His dwelling place among us was not Jerusalem, was not Alexandria, was not Athens or Rome, but Nazareth. Little Nazareth. Insignificant Nazareth. Impoverished Nazareth. Messed up Nazareth. And if you ignore this fact that Jesus came from this background, you're going to have a really hard time embracing the fact that he loves the least of these, the people who are struggling, the people who are in poverty. If If you ignore this reality that he comes from this background, you'll have a really hard time seeing him embrace the poor. Reading on, verse 16. And on a Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Stop. The synagogue was essentially a Jewish church. Every town with at least 10 God-fearing Jewish men had one. And every Sabbath day, the people of Nazareth would file into the synagogue. The Christian church is actually patterned after synagogues. They are very similar. There's evidence, in fact, that synagogues had a time of testimony and prayer and worship and Bible reading and a sermon time. There's even some evidence that some synagogues had pitch-in meals together. Now, if you're having a potluck, you are a church, okay? So that's what's happening here. So this was essentially the Jewish equivalent of church. Jesus went to church. It was his custom, scripture says. He didn't miss a Saturday. It was his habit. It was his ritual. He did not skip church. And oh, there must have been days where he wanted to skip church in that town. Like, could you imagine what that church service was like? Tiny country church in the sticks, I mean, think of the critters that went to that church. Think about it. When I was in Bible college, I was part of a program that would send young preachers to tiny churches in tiny towns because they couldn't afford a preacher, and we really needed the practice, you know, as, a little, as a young college-age kids. It's kind of like those, those hairstyling salons for people learning how to cut hair, only the damage was eternal. You know, that's kind of what we're... So anyway, I took this, this, this job for, for 50 bucks. I decided to drive four hours to the middle of nowhere, Kansas. Now there's the middle of nowhere and there's the middle of nowhere, Kansas. And the name of this town was Elk City, Kansas. Elk City, Kansas. I'll never forget driving in. It said Elk City, Kansas, population 42. Oh boy. And then we're, I'm driving in and in the middle of this clearing, there's this tiny little wooden church, Elk City Christian Church, next to a cemetery in a clearing. And I get out of my car, and I'm in my suit, in my tie, and I walk in, and I open the door, and I'm greeted by the sweetest little old lady. She is so sweet. Her name was Evelyn. She said, howdy, son. My name's Evelyn. I knitted this potholder for you. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome to our church. I'm 97 years old. I loved Evelyn. So I, I, I reached out to shake her hand, and I realized she didn't have one. She said, oh, Sonny, I'm sorry. Combine chewed my hand off in 1947. Like Okay. So I decided to go to Sunday school and sit in. I I swear to you, 10 out of the 15 people in that Sunday school classroom were wearing overalls and Carhartts. All right. And none of them had teeth. Not a single person had teeth in there. And I'm sitting there listening to the Sunday school class and I'm hearing this like thumping, this loud thud above me, above my head in the ceiling. And this guy, he leans in, this, this, this old farmer guy, he's just like, don't worry about them. The coons are fighting. I'm like, raccoons? He's like, yeah, don't worry. They're just romping around. They'll be done in about 10 minutes or so. Then it was time for church service. I promise you, I, I can't make this up. I walk in and-, and above the baptistry, there is mounted a deer head. Above the baptistry. There's-, there's green shag carpet paneling walls. Some of you are like, well, that's my kind of church. Sign me up. Then it was time for worship. The choir takes the stage, what they call a choir, and I'll call it a quartet, okay? They take the stage and they're accompanied by a pianist and the pianist, the piano player is none other than Evelyn. <laughs> she has one hand and she's the piano player. And there's no way they are on the same page. Like, what the choir's singing and what she's playing are not the same songs. And I, I'm, I'm frantically trying to flip through my Bible, trying to, to, to see or try to prove that instruments are not to be used in worship. Because if ever there was a case, this was it right here. Then it's time to preach. And I'm preaching and the whole time I'm, I'm, I'm staring back and then there's about 30 of them. And out of the 30 people in the crowd, there's maybe three sets of good teeth and they're smiling and I'm trying to get through my sermon with raccoons thumping in the ceiling the whole time. That's likely what the church Jesus grew up in was like. Probably very similar. Similar sized town, similar sized church. This is likely the church Jesus went to in Nazareth. You think Jesus ever heard a bad sermon? Oh my goodness, yes. Oh my goodness. All the talented preachers and teachers would get called up to the big leagues, the city synagogues. Nazareth was likely left with open mic Sundays and youth Sundays and and missionary slideshows and puppet shows to kill time and wait for a preacher to come. And when the preacher would come, it would be a 20-year-old kid or a guy that's getting ready to to retire. And and they likely didn't have a good teacher every now and again. You think Jesus ever sat through a bad worship service? my goodness yes i mean the worship band probably consisted of spoons and those guitars made out of rubber bands and shoe boxes i bet specials music the only person who ever volunteered for special music was sister bertha's tone-deaf niece and three out of four sundays she'd get up and sing moses take the wheel you know i could totally see that happening you think jesus ever went to a bad potluck oh my goodness yes is spam kosher i don't know Like the bread pudding has fur on it. They're picking out shrapnel from the shotgun out of the chicken or the varmint or who knows what they're eating. Oh, man, Jesus likely didn't go to a prime church. Yet he was there. He was there. Every Sabbath day. Every Sabbath day. It was his custom. Rain or shine. Some of us could learn a thing or two about Jesus this morning. I mean, look, some of you are sitting home listening online right now because it's raining out. Oh no, I can't go out. It's raining. I'll oh, melt. No. We have become a church of whining, disgruntled, unsatisfied consumers, where if worship isn't just right, or the perfect selection of songs, or the right balance of instruments, or the right people singing on the praise team, or if the, if the preacher isn't funny enough, or if the sermon is too long, or if the, the service is too boring, or if the walls are scuffed and the carpets are stained, or if the children's ministry doesn't have enough volunteers, or if the youth ministry doesn't have a youth minister yet, or, or if the parking lot is too full, if, if we have this list of all the things that are wrong, some of us have this. And if, if the church doesn't meet our standards, We leave. We leave. We either go home and pout for a while, or we go on the tour. the tour. You know what I'm talking about. Most of you know what I'm talking about. where, where, either, where, where we go to like the, the like-minded churches in the county, where we go to the similar churches in the county until the, the church back at home gets fixed or our, our needs are met, or, or, our demands are met, where we go to this, these other churches and go on this tour for a while. Until things calm down. Man. Some of us. Some of us have been on tour before. Some of us left for a month. Went to the other churches. Came back. Some of you are in this room this morning. And you're on tour from another church. Because of something the other church did. And if that's the case here this morning. I'm glad you're here. But please, please, please. You need to return back. And, and, and help be a part of the solution rather than part of the problem. You need to return. Go back. Because here's the problem. Here's the problem in this country right now in our churches. The past decade, the American church has spent over $400 billion. $400 billion. And only 4% of that giving went to the poor through benevolence or through mission work worldwide. 4%. 96% was spent on pastors and buildings and programming. In other words, what was given went right back to the people who gave it. We only helped ourselves have the church that we wanted. And during this past decade, over 40 million people have left the church. We spent all this money to have the best churches, and 40 million people left our churches. And the only churches that grew this past decade have grown because of church hopping or Christians on tour. 97 to 99 percent today, 97 to 99 percent of all church growth in this country is a result of Christians switching churches. What are we doing? What are we doing? We have a church on every corner and all we do is trade members. The church with the best show and the most resources and the best programming, the best pastor staff wins and Jesus loses. Can you see him? Can you see Jesus sticking it out, sitting through the bad sermon, trying to glean something, anything, taking notes, trying to learn more about God? Can you see him praising God loudly, not only in song, but in the way he lived? Can you see him showing up early, helping people to their seat, being the first to enter and the last to leave because he's so excited to do life with God's people? Can you see him volunteering, helping out in the nursery, helping visit sick people, investing and in getting in to know God's people? That church was probably a train wreck because no church is perfect. But he was there every week. It was his custom. For those of you here today who are busy trying to find something wrong with this place, you will find plenty, believe me. Instead of making lists of all the things that are, that are wrong, though, have you tried instead doing what is right? For those of you who have floated from church to church to church because you keep finding things that are wrong, have you considered that, that as you have the spiritual gift of finding things that are wrong, have you considered thinking about whether or not you are in the wrong? Have you considered after you're finding all these problems that it might be you that are the problem? Sermon number two, they get, what, they get much shorter, I promise, okay? Sermon number two, reading on, verse 16. And Jesus stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. Go ahead and stop for a moment. Think about the devotion that these people had to the word of God. W- whether it was read to them, whenever it was read to them, they stood up to hear it. They had this honor, this extreme devotion to the word of God. They treated this word of God with special honor. Remember, most of them couldn't read or write, so they listened very intently when the Word of God was read. Also keep in mind that the printing press wouldn't be invented for another 1,400 years. These synagogues would have, the only, have only a select number of handwritten, hand-copied scrolls. Scribes were very important back then. They would, they would copy these scrolls by hand, and if they made a mistake, they'd have to discard it and start all over again. These scrolls were hundreds of years old, and they're being passed on from generation to generation, and only the synagogues would have access to them. We learn so much about Jesus in just this handful of verses. We know he can read. We know he could read Hebrew. We also know that he had the book of Isaiah virtually memorized because he found the exact place where it was written, the exact scripture, the exact passage he wanted to read. Verses, you know, verses wouldn't be added for another 1,100 years and chapters wouldn't be added for another 1,100 years. Yet he can find the exact spot in this scroll, the exact one he's looking for. He is an extremely devoted follower of God. He is extremely devoted to the word of God. These these scrolls were only kept in the synagogue. He would have had to show up after work to have access to them. He'd have to get up really early to have access to them. And, And we have like, if you're like me, you have like 30 Bibles at home, right? And we have all these different translations, all these different commentaries, just collecting dust or our coasters, on our coffee table. If a first century Jew stayed at a, at a hotel and saw that we have a full copy of the word of God in the drawer in between the beds, like he would, he, it'd blow his mind. They had an extreme devotion to the word of God. We do not know how Jesus learned how to read or where he learned to read Hebrew. He spoke Aramaic, the poor man's language. Maybe he had a little bit of Greek, but, but Hebrew was reserved for priests and scholars and scribes. Did he go to Hebrew school? Not likely because of how remote his hometown was. It's not very likely that he did that. So how did he learn? He, he most likely was self-taught. He, 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 you, can you see him as a little kid bugging the priests and the, the scholars and the scribes and the Pharisees? Can you see him doing that? Teach me this. Teach me about that. There's evidence of that, actually. Like when he's left at the temple as a boy and his parents leave him for a couple days and they come back, he's bugging them. Teach me something. I love it. I love that. He's very devoted. But we don't know for sure how he learned to do this. To be able to know that scroll forwards and backwards is remarkable for a tecton in first century Palestine. He likely went to the synagogue to study after he got off work. And he likely would have gotten up extremely early to study before he began his day. And some of you are thinking, no wonder he's single, right? When did this guy sleep? That's some, what else other people are saying. Like, when did he sleep? Well, there's only two accounts in scripture where Jesus is sleeping. One is in Mark 4 where he's on the back of a boat during a hurricane and he's sleeping on the cushion. You remember that? His disciples are like, wake up, we're gonna die. He's sleeping. Tired much, Jesus? And the other account is when they rest his body in the tomb. Jesus literally pioneered the phrase, I'll sleep when I'm dead. He was extremely devoted to the word of God, extremely devoted to the people of God. He just doesn't sleep. And many of us are devoted to similar things or we're devoted. We have extreme devotion that keeps us up all hours of the night, but it's not the same things Jesus is devoted to. He wants us to follow him. He opens up the scroll, verse 18, reading on. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor go ahead and stop. You know, many people, they teach their children that Jesus was born and that Jesus died. Like most of our little kids, they know that full well. I want to teach my children that Jesus lived, and I want to show them how he lived. And this is remarkable. This right here is, is Jesus's mission statement. It's one of the first accounts of Jesus's mission statement in the Bible. This is what he came here to do. This is what he, he is sent by God to do. The Spirit of the Lord is on him to do this. The first thing that he was sent to do is this. He proclaim good news to the poor. Good news to the poor. And the poor needed a lot of good news. In the first century, they weren't doing very well. Like the poor were extremely abused and mistreated. They were looked down upon back then. Similar to Today. They had this philosophy though, and that philosophy continues to this day. That if you were poor, it's because you were doing something wrong, or, or you were in folly, or there's a reason you were poor, or God didn't like you because you were poor, and He only blessed the rich people. Like if you were wealthy, you were blessed, and God liked you. That was the common mentality. This this mission statement here flies in the face of that thinking. Jesus is coming to say God sides with the poor. That is the good news. God has come to proclaim good news to the poor. God sides with the poor. If it is rich versus poor, God sides with the poor. It flies in the face of all that thought. And many of us, like, we ignore the poor. We look down on the poor today. We, 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 or if we do anything for the poor, it's 4% statistically. You know, and I know 4th Avenue does a much better job than most churches. The fact that it's 4% that we give to the poor through benevolence and 96% for all the other stuff means a lot of churches aren't doing anything, anything for the poor. We look down on them, we ignore them, or we don't even notice them. But Jesus has come to proclaim good news to the poor. What's the next thing he's come to do? There's a second thing he comes to do in, in this mission statement. He says, freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. Freedom of prisoners and recovery of sight of the blind. These prisoners could be people who had done bad things and were thrown away in the jails or people that were wrongfully accused. He, he's here to say God sides with the prisoners, good and bad. Like the people who are deservedly rotting away in prison for doing something horrible, God sides with them. This is revolutionary. This is insane what he's preaching here. Or prisoner could also mean this too being held captive by somebody like slavery slavery is a dark history in our nation or it's a dark time in our nation's history but slavery still exists across the world there's sex trafficking and sex slavery people are bought and sold and oppressed even today he could also be talking about prisoners of our own sin prisoners to ourselves our addictions our bad habits that are ruining our lives and our, our marriages and our relationships He's he's come to proclaim freedom for people who are oppressed and in prison, held captive. Isn't that great to know that our God is a God of freedom? Our God wants you to be free. And if you're struggling with an addiction or if you're struggling with a sin and it's ruining your life, he wants you to be free. He's he's siding with you. He wants you to have help. And this place is a great resource for that. We have have a recovery group that meets every Sunday morning at eight o'clock up in the red room. Man, if you are struggling with an addiction, I want to challenge you to go up there and seek help. There's a great, we have a great staff, like Nancy's on staff, just so you know. She's an incredible counselor that can help you through some of this stuff. And shepherds, our shepherds are fantastic. They're phenomenal. They really want to help people. They want to help you uh, get get out of this oppressive lifestyle or get out of this addiction and, and recover. Be free. Our God is a God of freedom. Here's the second thing though he says out of this next statement and recovery of sight to the blind. Jesus has come to give sight to the blind. Now he only healed a few blind people in in the gospels. There's a much deeper meaning here. There's blind people everywhere. And recovery of sight to the blind. The blind people are spiritually blind. The people who aren't seeing the things God wants them to see. They're the people who aren't seeing God's face and what God wants for their life. That's recovery of sight to the blind. This is spiritual blindness. Let me, t- let me explain to you what spiritual blindness is. While I've been talking about how Jesus is a friend of the poor and how he wants to set the captives free, while I've been talking about this, I've been watching your, your eyes, and some of your eyes, they just glazed over. It's, it's kind of scary. Like, while I'm talking about this stuff, the very things God cares about, the very things Jesus came to free us from, like, your eyes just glossed over, Yeah, I don't care about poor people, or I don't care about the people that are oppressed or held captive. I see it in your eyes. That's what spiritual blindness is. You can see it when your eyes glaze over when when I talk about something that God cares about. That is spiritual blindness. And most people don't know they're blind until it's it's revealed to them that they're blind. For instance, um, I got glasses two days ago. Before I got them, I just knew I had headaches and I couldn't read, like, at night. And I'm like, man, why do I have headaches? So I got checked out, and the eye doctor's like, yeah, you're like you're like almost blind in one eye Uh, and you're working so hard to see and your eyes are putting so much energy towards focusing and seeing it's giving you a headache. And I didn't know. So he's like, here's some glasses. I put them on and I'm like, I can read. I can see. Wow. Did you know I have some cute kids? I didn't know that. I thought they were just like loud and cute. Did you know my wife is beautiful? She is beautiful. She has red hair. It's beautiful. I didn't know that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but I can see now. Like, and some of you, I've been talking with you this morning. and I'm like, oh, I didn't know you were that old. I didn't know that. I thought you were like 30. But you don't know that you're blind until you can see. And he's talking about spiritual blindness. He wants you to recover from spiritual blindness. There's people all over this world that, that he wants you to see so you can help. There's people all over this world struggling. The poor, the oppressed, the people in prison. He wants you to see them. God wants you to care about the things that he cares about. God wants you to care about the people that he cares about. And we just walk past them. We don't see them. He wants your eyes to be open so you can see. Oh, man. And it's really easy to tell if you're blind. It's really easy. Because, like... You know, how, like an actually blind person, they have a seeing eye dog and a cane and sunglasses. You can tell that that person is blind. There's, there's ways you can tell churches are blind as well. When they fight over stuff that doesn't matter at all, they're blind. When, when, they, when they get concerned about the things that God aren't, isn't concerned about, and when they ignore the things that God is concerned about, they're blind. When their eyes glaze over, when, when the things that God cares about is being presented to them, or they don't care about the Word of God, or they shut the Word of God off and put it on a, on a table or on a bookshelf, they're blind. You can really see it when they glare at people, or when they judge people with their eyes. That is blindness. But you know what Scripture says here? If you're blind here this morning, if you're blind, if you can't see, God's on your side. Isn't that phenomenal? In spite of our short-sightedness, in spite of our blindness, in spite of us not living in the will of God, God still comes up to us and says, I want you to see. I want you to see these people. I want you to see my heart. And he's not going to stop until we do, until we open our eyes. Recovery of sight to the blind. That is good news. Our God is a God that, that wants to free the oppressed, that wants to help the poor, and wants to give sight to the blind. Finally, he wants to do this. He wants to release the oppressed. There are people that are oppressed all over the world, that they're at the bottom of, of this giant pile of people and they're getting squished and they're trying to cry out, but they don't have a voice. Those are people that are oppressed. They're oppressed by governments or they're oppressed by people. They're oppressed by excessive taxation or, or debts and schemes and stuff tricking them and all this stuff. There's, there's oppressed people all over the world, but there's also oppressed people in this room. I, I was really close. I'm really close to this dear, this dear person in my life and she had been struggling in an abusive relationship her entire marriage. He started hitting her on, her, on their honeymoon. He, he constantly put their child's life in danger and her life in danger, and he was threatening to kill her. He would hit her when he'd get mad. She was in an oppressive relationship, an abusive relationship. And for years, we tried desperately, please get out of this. You need to be free. And she's like, I don't know if I can make it on my own. I don't know. And finally, she had enough courage. And, and what she told me was, God will get me free. God will help me. And she left him. And, and it it's amazing. Her life's so much different now. I'm telling you, Jesus' mission is to free oppressed people, people that are being oppressed. And then finally, he says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What this is is, it, the year of the Lord's favor is this thing called the year of jubilee where every 50 years or so, the, the people of Israel would celebrate being freed from slavery in Egypt. And if anybody had debt, or if anybody was working as a slave to try to pay off debt, they would be let free. They'd be let go. And, and all this debt would be forgiven. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. I wish we had it in this country. <laughs> um, some politicians do too, I guess. But it'd be good to just be free. And, and what Jesus is saying is, is I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and they're sitting there talking about it and saying it's not the year of the Lord's favor right now. We haven't done this thing in years. We're we're under the oppressive empire of Rome now. We can't do this year of jubilee thing. And he's like, no, 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 with God. This it's an amazing statement. All the debt you have racked up with God, all the things that you've done to hurt God and hurt other people, all this debt from all this sin that you've accumulated over the years. He's here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's here to say that our God is a God of grace. And mercy that our God forgives your debt. What an amazing message Jesus is proclaiming here. This is incredible. Our God is a God that, that heals, our God is a God that forgives. Our God is a God that cancels debt to release the oppressed. This is our God. What an amazing God we serve. Finally, one one verse here. Then sermon number two will be done. Alright, one verse here. Then he rolled up the scroll. Gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today. Our God is a God of today. It's amazing. Like Most of you think in this room that our God is eternal. That he, he, be, that he has no beginning and he has no end. And yet, if that is true, then that means today is the most important day. For some reason, God is parking on today. For some reason, God cares about what you do, partnering with him today. Our God is a God of today, not tomorrow, not next week, today. Our God is a God of today, right now. He wants you to be free today. You need to ask for forgiveness today. Don't plan to get up early and stay late to spend time with God tomorrow. Do it today. Don't be the church that cares about the poor, the oppressed, the prisoners tomorrow. Be the church that cares today. Powerful word from Jesus today. It's amazing. Imagine if we would just take this mission statement of his and make it our own mission statement and say, we're going to partner with God today to care about the things he cares about. Today, it is fulfilled in your hearing. It's it's an ancient truth throughout scripture, and it's amazing. It says, once you hear the word of the Lord, once you hear the word of God, the expectation is that you act on it today. Sermon number three. I'm going to come down here just so you know that I'm almost done, all right? Sermon number three, it's a very short one. And I wanna ask the praise team to come up and the prayer team to line up around the room. We're just gonna read out the rest of this passage, okay? In Luke chapter four, beginning in verse 22. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Isn't this the son of a tecton? they asked? Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. All right, what they're doing here is they're saying, oh, what a sweet little sermon by our hometown kid. Oh, what a great, I remember when he was just a whippersnapper tecton, and now he's here preaching a nice little sermon here. And and, and then he says, surely you're going to quote this to me. Do what you did in Capernaum here. Essentially saying, I've heard that you healed people in Capernaum. You need to heal people here. I heard you did signs and wonders in Capernaum. You need to do them here for me. So Jesus is just this kid that they're looking at and they're like, they're not taking him seriously at all. If anything, he has special powers. He's a cosmic Santa Claus that will do for them what they want him to do. And Jesus's response is this. I tell you the truth, because this had to have broken his heart. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there's a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there are many in Israel with leprosy at the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet none of them were cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. What's he saying? He's like, if you're not gonna take me seriously, if you're not gonna take this mission of God seriously, if you're not gonna open up your eyes to the needs around you, if you're not gonna partner with God, if you're not gonna take what I am here saying to you seriously, you need to know that I will go to someone who does. That's what he's saying. There was a time in Israel's history where they had prophets and they didn't even help the people in the nation because the people didn't like them. The people didn't care about them. The people didn't listen to them. So they went to the widow and they went to Naaman the Syrian. That's what he's saying. He's like, "If you don't care about my message, I will go elsewhere to someone who does." When they listened, when they heard this, check this out, verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and on his way. People have been looking for centuries for this cliff, and it doesn't exist in the region around Nazareth. There's no cliff in this entire region. It really, the town is on a hill and it's a gradual hill and then there's a valley down below each side. What is, what's Luke saying here? Saying that they were so furious with him, they kicked him out of their synagogue and they tried to kill him. That's what he's trying to say. They, they ran him out of town. They said, get out of here then. Get out of my church. Get out of my town then. If you're gonna go to somewhere else, we're gonna get you out of here. They tried to kill him. They tried to run him out. Can you see this? They get the, the torches and pitchforks and run him out of their church and run him out of their town and he's running By himself, all alone, his entire town rejected him, and he's on his and he goes on his way peacefully. Jesus doesn't return to this town. It's really sad. And here's the sermon, sermon number three. It's really short. It's it's just one sentence. This is it. It's easier to throw Jesus off a cliff than to do what he says. It's easier to throw Jesus off a cliff than to do what he says. They're not taking him seriously. And we really have a decision to make in our own heart. Our own heart's a town, right? Our own heart's a town. We can either do what he says and and partner with God, on mission with God, open our eyes to the the will and mission of God, or we can run them out. We can run them out of town. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you can give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word. Thank you for Jesus and his example. I pray that we would be passionate followers of you, that that we would go wherever you lead. And we know that you'll lead us to the people that we forget about and ignore. Lord, I pray that we would be a church on mission with you, that we would exist to, to bring good news to the poor, to release the prisoners, to help the oppressed. I pray that our eyes would be opened so we could proclaim that your favor is on us, that you have forgiven our debts. Lord, I pray that no matter what church we go to, whether it has its act together or not, whether it it has all the things that we agree with or not, that we would give it our all because we're doing this for you. I pray that instead of finding things that are wrong, we would do what is right. Thank you for your example in Luke chapter four. Lord, I don't know what this church needed to hear this morning. I thank you that that you've proclaimed your word from Luke 4. I pray that you lead us into this day and, and into this week on mission with you, that we would listen to you and not run you off a cliff. Lord, Lord, be with this church. We love you and we thank you for Jesus and the ministry he brings. It's your name I pray these things. Amen.